0: Good morning, guys. How are we? Good. Hey, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Zach. I am the pastor here at The Grove. Um, we've been in James for several weeks. We just got into James 4, as you read with us. Uh, I'm going to jump right in. We got way too much to cover, not enough time. So we're just going to dive right into James. Uh, we've been reading this thing uh, for a long time now, it seems, several weeks. Um, and this is my favorite passage in James, probably. Um, I say that because I'll probably find like, a new favorite one next week, um, maybe next week's passage, but right now, this is my favorite passage. Um, it is there, there, There's a sentence in here, uh, and we'll get to it, and maybe you can guess it, that I just absolutely love. Um, and so as we read this, um, we're going to get super practical. What James has been doing, James has been giving us some diagnostic tests, right? So um, there's this idea that... Uh, You can deceive yourselves and and say that you're a Christian and not actually be saved, not have actually experienced grace. And so James is going to give us some diagnostic test. And so today, uh, the test that he's giving us is about quarreling and fighting um, and our disordered desires. He's actually not just going to give us a diagnostic test. He's going to give us the remedy for that in the same passage. And so we'll read back through it, although Mark did a fantastic job reading it for us. Um, we'll, we'll we'll pick it up back in verse 1, uh, James 4 verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So this should be re- like extremely practical for us, right? So who in here has had a quarrel or a conflict with someone else sometime in their life? Like everyone, right? So like this applies to all of us. This is something we all deal with. We all have quarrels, we all have fights. Now, Real quick, some quarrels, some fights, um, some conflict is good, right? So bad things happen and we need to stand up, to the stand up for truth. And, but what this kind of quarrel, what this kind of fight is talking about, this kind of conflict, is the kind that comes from disordered desires in our heart. Where we want things, we want things for us, where we um, become, uh, we desire things out of order. And so instead of desiring God's glory... And instead of desiring the fame of his name, we want things for us. We desire things for us. And so um, there, there is a way in which we can uh, read uh, scripture, we can commune with the saints, and we can uh, be, uh, glorify God in such a way where we're just thankful for all the gifts that he's given us. We just are thankful that we have health, that we have um, friends, that we have family, that we have church, that we have the gospel. We can be Thankful for those things, or there's another way to live life that I find probably most of us dabble in some. Some live here where we kind of live in this area of entitlement, where we believe that we deserve certain things. So instead of being thankful for what God has given us, instead of being thankful for the gifts that he's given us, we feel like we're owed those things, like we deserve these things that I deserve. So we come home from work, and we, we feel like, our, like we're, we're owed some rest time. Like we're owed some me time. I had a tough day at work. I deserve some couch time. Turn on the game and just relax. I, I'm owed that because of what I did today. We, we feel like we're entitled to things. We think our spouse should serve us. We think our kids should serve us. We, we think we go to work and we think at work should be about us. And when people, uh, when work's about, them, other people are about themselves or maybe even the company is about the company and not about you, we become disgruntled, we become frustrated, we become indignant towards the people around us who aren't giving us what we want. We have disordered desires. Instead of being about God and his glory and being about others, we become about ourselves and we feel like we're owed certain things. When we don't get those things, we have conflict. First with those around us, and then eventually with God, because we feel like God isn't giving us what I deserve. I deserve this. Hey, I, I grew up in church. I read my Bible. I did this. I did that. I should be able to find a good spouse. I, I deserve that. I'm owed that. Or, hey, I did all the right things, and, and my marriage isn't working out. And I, I, I'm frustrated. I'm, I'm down. Like, I'm depressed. And I, God, you owe this to me. I did everything you asked me to do. Why wouldn't you give me this one thing? Real quick, I don't think any of us, and in fact, I know, I say think because uh, I don't want to be too heavy, but I know none of us here should ever want from God what we deserve. Like the entire gospel is about celebrating the unfairness of God, that he's not fair, that he doesn't give us what we deserve, that he's given us grace, that he's given us mercy. And so, man, when we rebel against that and we say, you're not giving us what we deserve, you are right. And that is good news, not bad news. God does not give us what we deserve, but we think we owe, we we, we think God has made promises that he's never made. We think we're owed a good life. We think we're owed a good marriage, an easy life. We think we're owed money and security. We think these things are due us because of some decision we made or some book we were reading or some prayers we've said, and they're not due us. We're not owed to those things, but when those desires become uppermost in our affections and we don't get those things, we will have quarrels and fights among us. So he says, the passions are at war within you. Verse 2, you desire and you do not have, so you murder, so you hate, so you become indignant towards, you get frustrated with, you um, covet, you, uh, you covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask, and you do not receive, verse 3, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So we have this disordered heart. We have these um, disordered desires. And then, in verse 4, he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Friendship with, so this adulterous, you adulterous people, this word adulterous, um, it's not idolatrous, so it's not that you have idols, but adulterous is this idea of being a promise breaker. That you um, have made, you've, you've covenanted yourself to God and say, I'm going to be God's and he's going to be mine, and then we've broken that promise and we've chased other things. So we're this adulterous people, James says, you have made this promise to God, this covenant with God. And you've run away. And some of us have made other promises besides just the covenant that I'm going to follow him, right? Like some of us make promises all the time. Like, God, I will never do this again if you do this. Like we make these contingent promises. Most of the time when we make those promises, it's just a side note, I feel like most of us, maybe it's just me, um, but I think it's most of us. Hopefully it's most most of us. Um, We make those promises and while we make them, we have no intention of keeping them. Like we have plans for later that week about how we're going to break that promise the moment we make that promise. And so we live in this this life where we're this adulterous people where we um, we say we love God, we say I'm going to follow God, God I'm going to submit to you, I'm going to be yours, you're going to be mine, and we're going to, f- I'm going to follow, but then we chase after other things, and, and primarily here James is talking about the world, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity enmity with God, so this, it's uh, hostility to God, this word friendship I think sometimes eludes us today, uh, because we think we have all these friends and we don't, right, so Uh, In this age of Facebook and Instagram, we we think we have a a ton of friends. We have these really close, deep relationships we just simply don't have. Um, The kind of knowledge we could gain about people online would be like you'd be arrested for stalking 10 years ago, right? So, like, the kind of stuff, like, there's probably people in this room that if they found out how much you know about them without ever talking to them, they'd be creeped out, right? Like, that's just the, the world we live in. Because uh, you can go online, you can be like, oh, hey, I met so-and-so today. Oh, they have this sister, they ate this this day. Oh, their dog's sick, they go to this, that. Like, we could just know all this stuff, and we can get lost, and it, we could be we could be on Facebook for hours. And we feel like we have these friendships. And so we think we have, we understand this idea of friendship, but I think most of us don't understand the intimacy that should come with friendship, the closeness. And I'm not talking about um, like weird like bromance between two guys or something weird like that but I'm talking about this close friendship this intimacy where you're living life together that you're fully known by one another that you are um, being molded and shaped by the people around you on purpose you're living life in such a way where people are molding you your friends are shaping you and this is what we see jesus had this so jesus had uh, at one point he had 500 followers and then he had 72 and then he had 12 and but he had these three that were his close friends that he really spent time with and molded and shaped and one would consider himself the one whom jesus loved like this is the intimacy that i think so many of us lack we have what i think would only be fair to call close acquaintances but we don't have the friendship so when we think about Friendship here, what what James is saying is that some of you, you adulterous people, have taken that intimacy that you're to have with God, that closeness, that being molded and shaped by God, and you've gone to his enemy and said, would you mold me? Would you shape me? Would you give me the things I want that he won't give me? And so we've taken that closeness, that friendship we are to have with our Father in heaven, and we've gone to the world. We've gone to his enemy. We've gone and become hostile to him, saying, if you won't give it to me, I'll take it for myself, and I'll go with people who will help me take it. And we've gone, and we've become friends with the world. And James would say, you adulterous people, in verse 4, you do, not, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever, makes, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Enemy of God. This is heavy. This is, this is a diagnostic thing that um, when we have these quarrels and fights and we have these disordered hearts and we chase after things that are not God. We are an adulterous people and we, re- we are becoming friends with the world. It will lead to us becoming friends with the world to try and get what we do not have. We're far from God. We're enemies to God. And this is what I love is God's response to an adulterous people. We have made promises, we have made covenants with God, and we have broken those things for lesser things, and we've run and become friends and close. We've asked God's enemies to shape us. We've asked God's enemies to comfort us. We've asked God's enemies to mold us. And here's his response. Verse 5, Or do you suppose... It is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy, jealously, over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. This is an incredible sentence here. So you adulterous people, do you not suppose it is for no reason that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's put in you? So this idea of jealousy, I think it's hard for us to understand because when we think of jealousy, we think of it as a negative term. But there's this um, idea that that God has saved us, he's made us his people, and when we run back to what he saved us from, he yearns jealously for the spirit that he's given us because we have run back away from him. John Piper would say it this way, and I love it. It's gonna be up on the screen so you can follow along. But John Piper would say this about God's jealousy. God's jealousy is not the reflex of weakness or fear, Instead, God is jealous like a powerful and merciful king who takes a peasant girl from a life of shame, forgives her, marries her, and gives her not the chores of a slave, but the privileges of a wife, a queen. His jealousy does not rise from fear or weakness, but from a holy indignation at having his honor and power and mercy scorned by the faithlessness of a fickle spouse. So there's this picture here of someone being rescued someone being cleaned someone being redeemed someone being restored and they would run back to shame and get back in the mud and get dirty again and he yearns jealously for the spirit that he puts in us he yearns like that word yearn I'm just like I don't even understand that that God would yearn jealously for us there's not many people in my life I've ever yearned for and if I said that to them they'd probably be freaked out but the way God, the, the friendship that's being described here is this yearns jealously for the spirit he made us, the spirit that he's put in us. He yearns jealously. And his response to our adultery is he gives more grace. He gives more grace. It's like, it's not, it's not anger. It's, for the Christian, it's not anger. It's not wrath. It's not coming out and, like, and, and just giving you cancer because you're adulterous. I'm gonna teach you, don't be adulterous. Here's some cancer for you, enjoy that. It's no, he gives more grace. And I'm not saying that he won't take from us because good fathers take. Good fathers will take from us what would harm us. But the way in which he does it is he gives more grace. Romans 5.20 um, kind of echoes this. And it would, say, it would say this, it's up here as well. It said, now the law came to increase the trespass but where sin increased grace abounds all the more so the law comes in the law shows us how sinful we are and the more you go through the Ten Commandments from 1 to 10 man your your guilt meter just goes up it's more and more you you don't pass number one you don't pass number two three all the way to 10 you've broken it all and grace abounds even more than that sin and grace don't just meet and you have enough grace to cover your sin grace abounds more and more. And all, for all the sin in your life, for all the adultery, for all the running from God and diving back into your sh- the things that would make you shameful, the things that make you dirty, God's grace abounds all the more. He gives more grace. He doesn't get frustrated. He's not surprised by your sin. He's not surprised by your um, shame. He's not surprised by your desire to get dirty again. He gives more grace. He gives more grace. And this is incredible that God would do this. So I don't know um, everyone who walked in here this morning. I don't know how you walked in. I don't know how your friends dragged you here or your parents, but, but I know there's some here who the idea that God would yearn jealously for us is so foreign. Like you know your own life. Like you know the things you did yesterday, the things you did this morning in secret, and you know there's no way that God would yearn jealously for me. If God's all-knowing like they say he is, and he knows my heart, and he knows what I've done, there's just no way. But scripture would say, no, but but there's more grace. And he gives more grace, and he gives more grace, and the offer to you is to confess that need for that grace, to repent and follow him and receive it. Like, that's the offer. It's It's not that you can outrun God's grace, but his grace will always outrun your sin if you're in Christ so come and be in Christ no matter how you walked in this morning you can submit to Jesus today being the king and Lord of your own life is exhausting you're not you're, you're really bad at it can we just can we say that like you guys are awful myself included at being king of my own life like I sit sometimes on the throne of my heart and I feel like I'm ruling well and I'm not. Things come crashing down, I'm exhausted, I'm tired and the offer is to get off that throne to ask Jesus to go up and he's like yeah, no, that's my seat, I'll take it and then we can rest. There's not more stuff to do after that. We rest and we submit, we bow down to Christ and this is what James says, so if this diagnostic things going off, yeah I have disordered desires, I've made a covenant with God and I've, I've ran from that at times. I've, I've chased other things, I've wanted more than what God would give me. I thought that it was better, but it's worse, and I'm exhausted, and I'm tired, and I feel dirty, and feel ashamed. And so this is what James would say to do. He says, but he gives more grace. Verse 6. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So, what do we do in response to all this grace? What do we do in response to, to all the grace that God would lavish upon us that would cover our sin and then some? We submit. We submit to God. We bow down. We, we say, he's king and I'm not. And I'll do what he says. He's the Lord of my life. I am not the Lord of my life. I've tried it. I'm bad at it. It's exhausting. I don't want to do it anymore. Jesus, you're my king. And the first way to do that is to resist the devil. To resist the devil. God says, submit to me. How? Resist. This is how we do it. This is, this is step one in, res- in, in, in submitting. We resist the devil. Now, I'm, I'm, I talk about this all the time, um, the, uh, <laughs> I think so many people give the devil way too much credit. Uh, I think, I think there's a lot of people who don't acknowledge him enough, but I think so many, so many people in our culture here in Spruce Pine give him way too much credit. The devil can tempt us, but he cannot make us do anything. Like this idea, oh, the devil made me do it. I know no one here would say that, but we hear it and we kind of resonate with that. Yeah, like, man, I just wish the devil would get off my back and not everything would be better. No, that's not how this works. Like, you have this flesh. You have these passions that war within you. And what the Bible would say is, because the Holy Spirit is in me, I don't have to sin anymore. Like, I will. I will stumble. I will fall. I will make mistakes. But I don't have to. In Corinthians, Paul would say that God would always make a way of of escape for the believer. We don't have to sin. The devil can't make you do anything, so we resist. This resist isn't this neutral, like, well, don't follow the devil. No, it's resist. It's this wartime language where we are combating. We, are, we, we don't just run away and retreat. We confront. We pull out our sword and we fight. We resist the devil. We fight through prayer. We fight through a million different ways, but we don't just stop. We don't just be like, oh, well, I don't want to do this. You resist. You fight. Paul would put it this way in, in ways he would say, put to death the old self. We f- so, so we put to death the old self, we resist the devil. There's this wartime language that comes with Christianity. Jesus would say himself, he didn't come to bring peace, but he came to bring a sword. Like we fight not to earn God's favor, not to earn God's grace. He gives more grace, so we submit, so we resist, so we fight. And he promises that when we fight, helps coming. When we fight, then a, s- a way of escape is coming. When we resist, the devil will flee. When we try and fight, Backup is on the way. Reinforcements that are better than us are coming. And he is there for us. And he will fight for us. We resist the devil. The other thing we do is we pursue God. It would say this. He says in verse uh, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There's this incredible promise here that if we would draw near to God, that he would draw near to us. Sometimes I think we feel like um, God's here and we just got to keep coming to where he is. That's not the story Jesus paints the prodigal son right he gets he gets part of the way home and the father leaves the house and chases him down like we draw near to God and he will there's this promise he will draw near to you so how do we draw near to God we talked about last week and there's nothing else for me to make up like this is it you you draw near to God by reading your Bible to know him more You don't just read your Bible because there's a whole host of people. Jesus had to combat them in the New Testament, too. There's a whole host of people who read their Bible because they think it's the right thing to do, because they think Jesus would say to the Pharisees, you read scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. But you are missing the point that all those scriptures testify of me. And you refuse to receive me. And so you miss it. We read scripture not just to read the Bible, not just to read Um, But we read to know him. We read to know the God of the Bible. And so that's draw near to God. Man, read read about him. He's he's revealed to us who he is. And so we read. We listen to. There's this awesome app that I'm using right now. It costs some money to use. Uh, It's called Dwell. And it's this incredible app. And uh, some of you guys aren't readers. Uh, I don't always have time to always read. So I have this app. You download it. You, you, pay like a, you can pay like a lifetime thing or you can pay uh, monthly stuff. Whatever you want to do. And these different voices, you can pick different voices. I like Felix. Felix is this African brother who will read to me. Uh, he'll read scripture to me. They have all scripture in there. You can have different noises. Like you can ambient noise. You can have like soft classical music. There's different choices. You mix and match how you want and just hear scripture be read. And the cool thing about this is for generations and centuries, our brothers and sisters couldn't read. And they relied on others reading for them. We get to enter into that and hear someone else read scripture for us, read scripture over us. So, hey, you should read, but you, should, you can also just listen and hear it. So dwell. I think the Bible app does something similar. I like Felix. I'm partial to that. Um, so whatever is best for you. But get to know the God of the Bible by reading the Bible that he's given us. And the, and the second thing I talked about last week is um, is Community. That we need to enter into community. That God, we, we, we miss, when, when, we, when we retreat from other believers, from our brothers and sisters, we, we miss God's means of grace for us. We miss the idea that God would bless us, encourage us, uh, shape us, and mold us by his family that we're a part of. So we can't retreat, we can't, we can't run away from community. There's a, an old um, person who, would, who said a long time ago that no Christian who has uh, um, God as their father cannot have the church as his mother. We need both. You need God, you need this personal, but not private, personal relationship with God in a public way with your family here at the Grove and beyond. The, the, you know, this morning we read the Apostles' Creed, some of you guys freaked out at the word Catholic. You're like, I knew it. Like, they take communion every Sunday. I get. I totally knew it. We busted. It's not, that's not it. It just is this lowercase uh, C on Catholic. It's universal. And so we're part of a bigger church that's larger than us. It's bigger than us. And we were to enter into that family and community. We do that in several different ways here. Last week we talked about home groups that will start back up in August. I want to just give you a super practical way to enter in a community here at the Grove. Come to a worship service early and stay late. It's, it's like that would be like if, if, if our people could just do that, you guys would find life because you would talk to people, you get to know people, you could make lunch plans with people, coffee plans. For week. Like if you just came early and, and made it a, an effort to talk to others and you stayed late and made it an effort to talk to others, I mean, you would find this family that you're looking for. And some of you are like, but I come early but no one talks to me. Go talk to people. Don't be part of the problem you're complaining about. Like, no one talks to me. Well, you're not talking to anyone. So, like, what do you want us to do? Like, you need to help us develop this culture where we have this community. I think we do a pretty good job of it. But if you find where it's lacking, don't just sit and wallow in it. Step out. Be a part of this family. Show up early. Stay late. You will find community. That's how I found community growing up um, or in high school when when I came to Christ is I would come to things early. I'd help set up and just make relationships. I'd stay late and help clean up and make relationships. So there's a serving aspect of it too. But man, it's just about building these relationships. Nothing builds relationships like a brother, like two brothers or two sisters just serving together and talking as they serve. So show up early. Stay late. James will continue. We need to submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. In verse eight, he says, "Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded." We need to take our sin seriously. And James isn't just let us off the hook and say, "Clean the outside, cleanse your hands." Although there is this this idea that we should cleanse our hands, but also purify our hearts. That we need to take our sin seriously. So many of us have known sin in our lives, and we're just like, "Ah, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's not like it's not hurting me that bad. It's it's totally fine. Like I can I can continue to do this thing, to watch this show, to speak this way of people. I can continue to gossip in this way. I can continue the way I'm going. It's not that big of a deal. It's not hurting anyone." But James would say, "No, cleanse your hands." purify your hearts, don't let this stuff, you need to take it seriously, and and here's why, this next part can be kind of confusing, why James would say this, especially since we've been talking about how God is leading us into joy, listen to this, verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom, humble yourselves therefore before the Lord and he will exalt you, man, be wretched and mourn and weep, that sounds Awful, right? Like, this is the Christian life. Be wretched. Like, how would it be if that was, like, our evangelism strategy? Hey, everyone, come to the grove. We're wretched. We mourn. We weep. This is what we do. We let our joy turn to gloom. Come and join us. I don't think people would come. And maybe they shouldn't, but this is what James is telling us to do. Why? Why should we do that? Without us knowing the depths of our sin, without us praying for tears over our sins like the Puritans did, we won't know how incredible that grace is that God has given us. There's this incredible story in, in, in the Gospels. There's this woman who was caught in adultery. And um, the, the, the people brought her, the, the law would say that she should be stoned to death because of adultery. And she's guilty. Her guilt is never in question. She doesn't say, I'm just not true." It's never in question. They bring her before Jesus and they say she's guilty in adultery. The law says we should kill her. What do you say? Jesus says, let he who's without sin cast the first stone. And the Bible tells us from oldest to youngest, they dropped their stones and walked away. And then Jesus goes to the woman, picks up her face, Hear this. The God of creation, the one who created everything, the one who sustains everything, picks up her face and says, Who has condemned you? No one. Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Like she's got snot and tears and dirt just running down her face. Like this is the most shameful moment of her life. And, and there's no room for her to say it's not true. It's true. She is guilty and deserves death. And in the most shameful, worst, horrible point in her life, the one who created her, the one who sustains her, picks up her face and says, I don't condemn you. Go. Go and sin no more. Do you think she stayed in a place of weeping, in a place of mourning, in a place of gloom? I don't think she could stay there very long hearing those words from the creator of all things, Right? So we have to enter into this place where we're grieved for our sins, where we mourn, where we weep, where we are just devastated over the sins of our lives. And we've never entered into that. We need to pray for it. God, would you make me devastated over my sin? Because I want to experience this grace that I see in the Bible. And I I think sometimes I feel like you've forgiven me for these little things, but I don't feel like I've done that much. Would you show me how much I've done? Would you show me how wretched I am? I want to experience the gospel. I want to experience this grace that I've heard about. Would you show me? This is what James is talking about. We have to do that. We have to humble ourselves before the Lord. And like he lifted the face of that woman, he will exalt us and lift our face if we humble ourselves before him. And this is incredible news. He continues on. And I think, I think there's a couple things here that I just love in verse uh, 11 and 12. <clears throat> he says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. But who is able to save and to destroy? But who, who, He who is able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? So James ends this with this diagnostic test. What do you? Who, how do you speak about your brother? How do you speak about your sister? I think sometimes in our culture, we are so quick to be experts at how people are missing it and not, m- not making the standard that we have for them. We are so quick to judge and say, I can't believe that person did that. I can't believe they're doing that. I can't believe they're even thinking about doing that. And if that's our life, if that's our heart, where we're just constantly like, judging our brother, then we have not experienced this grace that James is talking about. Because if we've experienced the grace that has saved us, then we would be quick to give grace to others. We'd be quick to celebrate the movement of the Holy Spirit in the lives of our brothers and sisters. Where we would say, man, I cannot believe how much this person has grown over this period of time. Instead of saying, I can't believe how much further they have I can't believe how much they've grown. I can't believe what God has done. What if we as a family of faith, a community of believers became experts in what God has done in the lives of those around us instead of experts on how much further they have to go? Like what would it be like to be that kind of light to the world, to be that kind of light to Spruce Respond. to be that kind of light to Burnsville where, where hey, we call things out, we need it. We, we encourage one another, we mold one another, yes. But the overarching mark of our Community of our family is that we know what God is doing in the lives of those around us and we celebrate that. We show grace, we humble ourselves, and we celebrate what God has done. We don't get mad at how much people have more to go, but we celebrate what He's done in their life. That would be incredible. And so we have this passage here, and we're going to close here with a couple things. Um, and as we close, I, I love this passage of scripture because of that line I told you guys earlier. It gives more grace. Some of us have experienced that grace. We've run and we're prone to run, but we come back and we experience the grace that God has for us. And so today is a day of celebration. Today is a day to celebrate what God has done in our life, to remember what God has done in our life because we're prone to forget. So what we do, the way we do that at the Grove is we celebrate through communion. We do it every Sunday. Some people are like, I don't know why you guys do it every Sunday. It seems like it loses its meaning if you do it every Sunday. I don't think that's true in any other area of our life. Like if you you think you shouldn't tell uh, your spouse you love them every day because it's gonna lose its meaning, I think you're missing the point on what words do and what actions are. If you think, hey, I shouldn't be intimate with my spouse all all the time because it's going to lose its meaning, I think a lot of guys in here would be super frustrated, okay, if we're being honest. So it's not that it loses its meaning, but we are so prone to forget what God has done for us. And so every Sunday we take time to remember that he gives more grace, that his body was broken to give us grace, that Jesus just can't tell this woman that he doesn't condemn her just because. But he knows that he's going to the cross to cleanse her with his blood that the snot and the dirt and the tears and the shame will be washed away by his blood and so when jesus at the last supper the last meal he ate with his disciples he takes that bread and says remember this you guys are going to be so forgetful but would you take this bread and break it and remember me and my body that's broken. And he takes the cup and he says several things about the cup, but one of the things he says is this, this blood, this cup represents the blood of the new covenant in that you'll no longer have to keep making sacrifices, but you can rest because I will make a sacrifice once and for all. And you can rest, that I will be seated, like the song said, like the Apostles' Creed said, I will be seated at the right hand of God the Father and you can rest, that this blood will cover you and cleanse you. So we celebrate, we celebrate weekly because I think for a lot of us, we're going to forget that on Monday if we don't talk about it every single week. Some of us forget it anyway. But we have to remind ourselves that God has broken his son's body for us, that he's spilt his blood to cleanse us. So we celebrate through communion, we sing, and we sing songs that just magnify the greatness and glory of God in the gospel. And then, and then and we do those things, we do this with a joyful heart with one another, and we sing with one another. One of my, uh, this is totally off topic, and I'll, I'll pray and we'll close, but one of my favorite moments at the Grove was just a few weeks ago. Uh, we're singing the song, All Glory Be to Christ, and, and, and Jessie's just, just nailing it with her voice and just sounds fantastic, which is cool. But, but, but what that's done is it's allowed us to sing with her and sing loudly Man, and I don't, you guys were at the first service So If you guys were at the first service two weeks ago, 3 I don't know, I'm not good with time. She dropped off and she stopped singing. And every single person I could just hear just singing as loudly as they could that all glory goes to Christ. And it was just beautiful. And so we sing and we stand and we sing not to... To to just go through the motions or like hey we you know every Sunday we sing three songs after this guy preaches and then we get to go have lunch it's not why we do this we do this to sing to celebrate what God has done who He is and who we are in light of that and so that's why we do it and so man if you're a Christian here today sing celebrate celebrate that you have been given more grace that you have been cleansed, that your hearts are being purified. Celebrate that. Take communion. Remember what God has done for you. For us, yes, but also for you. If you're not a Christian here today, we we would just ask that you don't take communion. Um, It's not because we're trying to be weird and trying to single you out. In fact, um, if you're sitting here today and you're just not sure about Jesus, you're not sure where you line up, um, you're the one who's actually said, I don't want to sit at the table with you guys. So we're just saying, hey, then don't sit at the table with us. Don't eat and drink with us on this one thing because we're remembering something that's happened for us and it may not have happened for you because you would refuse to sit with us. So this isn't us trying to trying to judge you or make you stand out. No one's going to notice. No one's going to be like, "Oh, I can't believe that person didn't take communion. But this is for the believer to celebrate. Uh, you're free to sing with us. And, and so as we close also, we sing we eat, we drink, and we also give through generosity. And so uh, for members or people who are committed here to the Grove and want to support and invest in what God's doing, there's a box on the bar and you can give that way. You can also give online. Um, but this is the time to worship God with all that we have and in, in, in all who we are. And so I'm going to pray for us. The band will come back up. We'll sing and celebrate. We got one more thing to do after we sing uh, that I'm excited about. So don't just leave. Uh, we got a couple announcements to make and something to do. So uh, If you can, stick with us through all three songs, take communion, enjoy, celebrate, and then we'll talk again just shortly afterwards. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much um, for the letter to James Lord. Every week I just feel like it's my favorite passage, but this week I really mean it. Um, I'm thankful for uh, what you've shown us in James, that you've uh, helped us do the diagnostic work uh, that we can just know that we've received grace, or maybe we haven't. We can wrestle with that. If we're here today and haven't received that grace, we can wrestle with that, and we can uh, come to you and admit that and confess that and and, and, in hopes that we can finally receive that, God. I want to pray for two things, God, that that one, that if there's some here who have not felt the depths and shame of their sin, they have not mourned, they have not wept, they have not Mm. been wretched, Lord, that you would grant that to them. That you would grant the gift of mourning, the gift of tears and weeping, Lord. That we can feel the depths of our sin and receive more grace, even more grace. that that, That though our sin is deep, dark, and dirty, and shameful, grace abounds all the more that it's higher than that, that it extends past that, that it doesn't just meet it and, and, and just kind of neutralizes it, but it washes it away and then we have righteousness left over. So much grace, Lord. So I pray that we'd receive that and two, that those who have received it, that you would just give them a sp- spirit of celebration this morning, that we can celebrate and sing loudly and eat and drink and love what you've done for us. And that we'd go out into the world and make that grace known to others who have yet to receive it, that it's free, waiting, and available for all who would come. Father, I love you. I'm thankful for all that you're doing for us at the Grove. Uh, be with us this morning. I pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. I love you. Amen. I love you guys.